Well, 2016 is an election year. Less than eight months from now, we will vote for the next president of the United States. One of the things that happens when elections are going on is that people ask themselves a question like this. What will this candidate's administration be like? That's the phrase we sometimes use, presidential administrations. By administration, we mean uh, when they're in charge, what will be the priorities? What will be the values? What will be the things they hold up? And so we're kind of saying, will their administration bring about some of the things that I want them to bring about? Will they value what I value? Those kind of things go through our mind. And I bring all that up because today Jesus is going to talk about his administration. He's going to talk about what it's going to be like when he's in charge, when God, the kingdom of God, comes to earth through his visitation. And what I want you to see if you're following along is that Jesus announces God's remarkable reversal of values. Jesus announces God's remarkable reversal of values. In just a few minutes, we're going to read these verses that I've entitled the message, Blessings and Woes. And I got to tell you, when I first started reading them, I remember thinking to myself, this is the opposite of how I've been schooled to think living in this world. This is not, this is the reverse. Do you all know what a reversal is? Here's a, here's a definition here on the screen. A reversal is a change to the opposite condition, a change of fortune, often for the worse, sometimes for the better. But it's a change, the opposite. It's a flip, it's a switch. And so Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, in my administration, values are gonna be flipped. They're gonna be reversed. They're gonna be different than you think. And this is shocking, friends. I mean, I don't know about you, but this, this takes a big adjustment to understand what he's saying. Now, where did I get this idea of reversal of values? Well, I was studying this week. Uh, Michael Wilcock wrote in his commentary this sentence, and it's really stayed with me. In the life of God's people, there will be seen a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. And so Jesus is going to announce in these verses, if you're following along, that what's valued in God's kingdom, what's valued in God's administration is not what we expect. And if we're going to follow Jesus, then we need to understand what life's going to be like under his administration. And I hope that by the time you walk to your car today, you'll be thinking about these values, what he values, what he says is priority, what he says is most important. Because friends, if we will agree with Jesus, if we will take this into our heart, it can change the way we face everything in life differently. And so we're going to look at these verses. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 17 through 26 today. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. If you're using a black Bible uh, in the seat rack, hopefully behind in front of you, that should be on page 720. Again, we're going to look at these verses. And while you're turning there, let me just review. Some of you can see by the banners up here that we're in this series for the first six months of 2016 called The Life of Christ. And we've been studying the gospel of Luke in the New Testament. And as we make our way through, 
we're doing some things. One is that we're looking at the words, the works, and the way of Jesus. Sometimes we've used this triangle just to remind us that you can look at these passages in several different ways. What we're doing when we look at the words or the works of Jesus, the things that he does, is we're trying to understand what is it about the way Jesus does life that's different. And so today you're going to see that the way Jesus sees life is different than most of us in the world see it. And he's going to flip, he's going to reverse those values. But also, we've been studying time in Luke because it's an opportunity because he is alive. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate the fact that he is very much alive, risen. Then here's the series sentence we've been using. You want to read it with me, please, out loud one more time? We want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. We really do want to learn his words, his works, and especially his way as we gather together. So want to talk about that. Now, I want you to notice in the notes, here's the outline today. You'll notice that I've reversed things. I've flipped the verses that are later that Jesus says and put them first in honor of Jesus. And then I will flip back to the other, not because this is the only way to do it, but I find that it's helpful if we start first with the world's values and then contrast them with God's values. And so we're gonna see the two kingdoms there. And so I also wanna show you, I've also flipped the order of the Bible verses. You know how we read from the gray boxes? So the first gray box, I'll ask you to read second. And the second gray box, I'll ask you to read first. Make sense? Okay, so I'll start here in verse 17 and uh, we'll look at this together. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. He's talking about his disciples. He had just selected his new disciples. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. You know, again, we're not used to this particular geogra uh, geographical description, but this is a very large area uh, in terms of the proportion of the Middle East. Jerusalem is way down south, Tyre and Sidon's way up north, Judea is everything in between. And so this is a very large area. Lots of people are hearing about Jesus and coming to follow him or to listen to him. And so it goes on. It says this, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now in that second gray box, would you read that with me out loud, please? Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then it goes on in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. What? When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now, would you read uh, that first gray box there, verse 25? But woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Verse 26, woe to you, when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Let me pray. 
Now, God, I am very aware that we will never understand this unless you reveal it to us. So I pray that you would open our eyes and that we would open our hearts to you and that you would teach us, oh, how we need you to be our teacher in such a confusing world. So we pray that you'd speak with great authority and come to every seat for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Okay, so let's look first at what's valued in the world's kingdom. You notice how he says, you know, several woes. There's four things that he actually highlights, and I'm going to actually put some names to them that aren't exactly the way they're listed in the text, but they carry the same idea. So here's the four values that Jesus says are valued in the world's kingdom. First, power. Power, because wealth and poverty are always a matter of power in the world's eyes. Second, comfort. You'll notice he talks about uh, well-fed now. That idea is that all the essential needs are met. They have more than enough. Well-fed now, comfort, value comfort. Third thing, success. Success. Those of you who laugh now, what's he saying? The word laugh there, very specific word, it actually has a negative connotation. It sometimes can mean to gloat. The idea is, is that people that are laughing now that Jesus is describing are people that are competing in this world, they've succeeded, and now they're looking down their noses or laughing at, laughing about other people that aren't as good as them. He says, woe to you who laugh now. The, the, the idea here is success. The last one is recognition. The idea is when all people speak well of you. So these are the four things that he lists. There's more, obviously, that the world values besides this, but these are a big four. Think about it. If I can just get some more power, I can accomplish what I need to. And those of us that, again, we live in a country where almost every one of us in this room would be considered rich by any of the standards of the world. That means that we have a place of privilege and a place of power that is unlike most of the rest of the world. In fact, it's so common to us that we don't even realize what a privilege we have. But what happens is, is that we value it so much, we never, ever, ever want that to be taken away, right? So you value power, the second thing, comfort, then success, then recognition. There's so much I could say about this, but notice what Jesus does next to these words. Next to these words, here's the word I would have put between blessed and woe. I would have put blessed. Blessed are you if you're rich. Blessed are you if you're comfortable. Blessed are you when you're successful. Blessed are you when all kinds of people celebrate you and recognize your name as great. Right? Wouldn't that be what you'd say? Jesus doesn't say that. He actually says, woe to you. Who are this? Wow. So what's woe mean? Sometimes when we hear the word woe, we picture people that just can't wait to really get someone good. Woe to you. And we picture that kind of like a threat. You're going to get yours. But notice that here's the definition of woe. It means compassionate, sorrowful, regret not a threat. It means compassionate, sorrowful regret. It's not a threat. So Jesus is not going, woe to you. He's saying, woe to you. The idea carries this idea, how terrible it will be for you. Oh, the misery that's in store for you. Wow. It's like, you got my attention, Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says this, 
Life was difficult for the people of that day, and there was not much hope for their, their circumstances would be improved. Like people today, many of them thought that happiness came from having great possessions or holding an exalted position or enjoying the pleasures and popularity that money can buy. Imagine how surprised they were when they heard Jesus describe happiness and joy in terms just the opposite of what they expected. They discovered that what they needed most was not a change in circumstances, but a change in their relationship to God and in their outlook on life. And Jesus was not teaching that poverty, hunger, persecution, and tears were blessings in themselves. If that were true, he would never have done all he did to alleviate the sufferings of others. Rather, Jesus was describing the inner attitudes we must have if we are to experience the blessedness of the Christian life. We should certainly do what we can to help others in a material way, but we must remember that no amount of things can substitute for a personal relationship with God. Woe to you. Now here's what else he says. If you're following along, what's valued in the world's kingdom is that all these things the world values can be yours now, but not what you will have later. In other words, he says, look, you can actually have them. If you have them, though, the word he uses for have here means full payment has been made. In other words, if that's what you seek after, if that's what you make as your highest aim, you may get it and it'll be yours. But that's all you'll ever get. That's it. You got what you wanted. And instead, you don't have something good to look forward to because it's so fleeting, because it's so temporary, then what's waiting for you after that is nothing like you thought it would be. On the other side of that, it's not what you thought it would be. And Jesus talks about these things many times. But let me go one more reason here. Why, why not value these things that we've been taught to value? I mean, I don't know about you, but just living in this world, as I listen to all the voices, every day I'm told to go after these things because then my life will really be something, right? And so he's saying, you may get all that, Jeff, on this side of heaven. You're overvaluing something because it's so fleeting, so temporary. And here's the last line of this section, the handwriting's on the wall for all who hope in these. Why not value these things? Because the handwriting's on the wall for all who hope in these. What do I mean by that? Last summer, we studied the book of Daniel. I loved it. And Daniel chapter five came right after Daniel chapter four. Do you remember that? In Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is this great Babylonian king. Real deal, by the way, true historical thing. He built one of the seven wonders of the world. This guy was an awesome king. But because he grew proud in all of his accomplishments, God said, you will be humbled. You will become like an animal for a certain period of time until you acknowledge that the most high God is ruler over the kingdoms of this world and you humble yourself. And sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar, as great as he had been, as proud as he had been, humbled himself and God restored him to his kingdom. Then comes chapter five. His grandson, sometimes called his son because that was the tradition of how they spoke about ancestors in those days, was Belshazzar. And Belshazzar decides that he's gonna live totally for the values of this world. And so even though he's starting to be surrounded by a Persian king, Belshazzar throws a party 
Now, again, you and I have no idea how bad parties can be sometimes just by reading the Bible, but here's just one clue. He not only invites all his wives, but he invites his concubines to be with his wives. Now, that'd be a bad scene, friends. That was considered the ultimate insult. So this guy's what he's doing. He's partying with all of the holy articles that had been taken out of the temple when his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered Jerusalem. And he's drinking with them, acting like they're ordinary stuff and you know, praising the gods of all the world's values. And as he's doing that, the party gets disrupted with a hand writing on the wall. He comes unglued. His knees are knocking so bad, he didn't expect this party to be interrupted this way. He immediately calls all his wise men. He can barely speak. We got to find out what that message is on the wall. They finally discover, they say, hey, there is, from the exile, there is a prophet named Daniel, who's very old now. But if you ask him to come in, he can explain it. Daniel comes in, and just to paraphrase what he says is, your days are numbered. Your kingdom has come to an end. And that very night, he was killed by the Persian king who overtook his kingdom. And friends, here's what Jesus is saying. Live your whole earthly life for these values. And when it's all said and done, you will be disrupted with handwriting on the wall and it will not be a pretty sight, just like it wasn't for Belshazzar. Translated, be Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar. So we live in a world where these are constantly in our face. Maybe even this morning, you're thinking about how you can pursue one of these values. What I want to ask you to do is think about what Jesus says about this reversal of values. That brings us to the next thing, is what's valued in God's kingdom. What's valued in God's kingdom, if you haven't already seen, is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. And here's the four values. Again, I'll serve them up this way. Weakness sacrifice, in other words, to go without. Tears, or the word grief, is what I put in my notes, because he says, those of you who weep now, and then exclusion. You know, that's how he says that. He said, when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil because of your trust in the Son of Man. So he says, these are actually the values of the kingdom. You're going, like, I would normally put woe next to that. I would go, no next to that, not just woe. That is highly repulsive to me. What are you talking about, Jesus? Why are you celebrating? The idea of him saying blessed, if you're following along, is the idea means favored and approved by God. It means to be deeply satisfied. Favored and approved by God, deeply satisfied. Picture Jesus saying, congratulations, you who are poor. Heaven applauds you. You who are poor, you who are hungry now, you who weep now, you who are hated, insulted, excluded, rejected, congratulations. I bring good news. Good news for you. And he had already announced this two chapters earlier. Remember Luke 4.18? He fulfilled the words of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to preach Good news to who, friends? The poor. To pronounce liberty for the captives, sight for the blind, and liberty to those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to the people the world 
had overlooked. I bring good news. Wow, blessed are you. Now let's think about this. The question becomes, what does he mean by poor? Does he mean the literal poor? Does he mean that if you're poor, you automatically are in the kingdom of God? No, but he leaves it obscure so that we understand that the poor are often the group of people that are the most open to God more quickly. And also, what did Jesus do? Did he come as a rich person or as a poor person when he came to earth? Was he born in a rich house or a poor house? Did he travel with lots of riches or did he travel simply? Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. And the idea is, is that you are the pious poor, the humble poor, the blessed poor of God that really know your need, not just financially, but also spiritually. Now let's think about the disciples. Some of you I know in your life groups talked about the fact that Jesus asked his disciples to leave everything and follow him. Now, they actually didn't leave it where they never had any access to it again, but they held it loosely. They no longer held on to it. And so now, what were they in the world's eyes? They were more poor to follow Jesus. And you'll find that a lot of times Christians, when we follow the Lord, we're not necessarily, he doesn't always say, I'm going to the rich to call my disciples first. A lot of times he looks to the poor. It's a fascinating thing. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. I've listed this out to the right. It says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has flipped. He's reversed the value system. You know, sometimes we think if we just see a celebrity on TV or we see someone famous, we go, man, if only God could get that person, if only they became a Christian, man, then lots of people would believe. And we have this mentality. We think that's how God works the most powerful way. The truth is, is while people may be impressed by that celebrity, Many times he uses the weakest people in the world, the people of no account to make the greatest impact on the world more than the ones that the world says are really important. He does things in corners. He does things in places that often surprise us. And Jesus says his value system is different. Notice this. I want to make sure I clarify though. He's not saying, he's saying don't seek these, but prize and see their value. Don't seek these, but prize and see their value their value. And I really appreciate this because when you and I think Jesus is saying blessed, we we sometimes think he's saying, try and be as weak as you can be. He's not saying, try and be as hungry as you possibly can be all the time. Try and be as unhappy as possible. He's not trying to say that, friends. He's just saying, look, don't seek these, but prize them and see their value if they happen in your life. Because that is, even though the world says that's a loss, even though the world says that's a waste of time in your life, let's just be honest, let's admit it. How many of us have actually gotten to know ourselves better when we went through a time of weakness than a time of power? How many of us have actually connected with God 
when we were hungry instead of well-fed. There are so many ways that sometimes those things can strip away all the false securities we have. And we can see the value system. God's saying, the apostle Paul had to learn this. He was writing to a church in Corinth that had what they called super apostles. They had all these amazing, miraculous experiences with God, all these visions and revelations. The sensational was celebrated at the church in Corinth. So in 2 Corinthians, he's writing to refute that. And so here it is in chapter 12. Look at what he says. Now, if you haven't read the first, this is starting in verse seven, but at the first six verses talk about how, he says, okay, you want to talk about revelations? I'll name one. I'll actually say it in the third person, but it was me. I was caught up to a third heaven. I saw things I can't even describe to you. But I want to tell you, God actually showed me something more powerful than a third heaven experience. And here's where he begins in verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations I'd received, a thorn was given me in the flesh. The idea here, a thorn, we picture something pricking us. It's actually like a stake that nails somebody to the floor. Lest I become exalted, this nailed me to the floor. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times, he means three long seasons of prayer. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. We just sang about this. Your grace is enough. For my power is made perfect in what, friends? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, then I am strong in Christ. Now, he actually talked about more paradoxes like this in 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 4, what he says here in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but we have this treasure. Those of us that trust Christ, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Is that impressive, by the way? Those were the ordinary jars of clay, clay pots, cracked pots, as one comedian once said. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side. Can you picture a box or something like that being put pressure on, but not crushed? Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, he expands this some more. He says, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. Now notice what he says, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown in the world, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, this is a strange sentence, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Friends, how many of us can remember that when God was all we had, those were the times we really knew that God is all we need.
And Jesus says, the world's value systems and God's value system are completely opposite. And I've come to announce the reversing of them in my kingdom, in my administration. And so notice one more thing is that his blessing is both now and later for all who hope in him. I want you to notice the verb tenses there. A lot of times we think it says, blessed you will be. And it does include later, but it says, blessed are you who weep now. In other words, in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the grief, there is favor, kindness, mercy from God for those who trust in him. Now, not just later, now. This last week, I was listening to some of the staff talking in our office and one of the guys said, he says, you know, until I came to Cherry Hills about 12 years ago, no one had ever taught me that eternity isn't just someday in heaven. Eternity begins right now. He says, therefore, I just changed my whole life to realize that what Christ offers to us is both now and later, that there's a measure that we can experience now with Christ, a sweetness of fellowship that is incomparable to anything the world can possibly offer us. It's a mystery, it's a paradox, but it's real. And therefore we can begin to walk with Christ now, not just later, pie in the sky. Oh, that's when he'll do all the good stuff in our lives. No, I can know some of that even now, even in my brokenness. Well, some of you know that during the Civil War, some interesting things were discovered. And one that's always touched me was a piece of paper that was found in the pocket of a fallen Confederate soldier during the Civil War. It was a prayer. Listen to this prayer because he understands the reversal of values. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. And he understood this amazing, curious reversal of values. And so this last Monday, after I preached last Sunday, about how Jesus came to give us joy and rest for all who will trust in him. I got an interesting text from a man I deeply respect in this church that Monday morning. And I asked him permission if I could read it to you because some of you know that we talked about how joy, what we have in Christ, joy is not happiness. Happiness is based on our circumstances. Joy is based on the presence of God, no matter what our circumstances Therefore, someone has said, joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. Joy means that in every situation you and I face, if we've hoped in Christ, for this, I have Jesus. It's like a quiet river running through our lives all the time. 
this joy and this rest of Jesus. So this man wrote, Jeff, I bring no problem or burden to you this morning, but only thanks for the message God put on your heart yesterday. The emphasis on joy was so great for my wife and I as it carried us through the day examining ourselves. We were thinking about eternity and knowing the best is yet to come, mostly thinking that for us, eternity has already started and we can live it now. And that's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to know that even if you're weeping now, if you're hungry now, there is a blessing that's flowing your way. It's flowing in you because of Jesus with you. Christ in me, Christ in me, the mystery by his Holy Spirit. And so let me just talk about how this all applies to our lives in these last three lines of the notes, okay? First of all, what's this mean today? That means that if you're going through a personal reversal, if you're going through a downturn, or if you're going through something that's absolutely confused you, that you can actually take heart because Jesus was willing to go through a costly reversal for you and for me. And if you're following along, here is the great news. Here is the best news I could ever share with you. Jesus' costly reversal gives us a radical inner freedom. Jesus' costly reversal for us actually gives us a radical inner freedom. What do I mean? The Bible says is that Jesus went through the greatest reversal the world has ever seen. He left the glories of heaven, the heights of heaven, looked down on us who were fallen, who were rebellious, who were disinterested and apathetic towards God, separated from God by our sin. And instead of going, it's their problem. He left the glories of heaven and he became a human being what a reversal. And not only that, he decided to be the lowest human being taking the form of a servant and being willing to die the most humiliating, shameful death on a cross that could ever be imagined in those days. So that by his reversal, we could be accepted by God. This is unbelievable. And when you and I understand that he cares about us that much and that he came to do a work inside of us that great, now we can face and look at life completely differently. It changes everything when we look at the cross. It changes everything when we understand what Jesus did in his costly reversal. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 if you would. I love this verse. It says, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Look at this one. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is undeserved favor, friends. It's blessing that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. What a reversal. He lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we deserve to die because of sin so that we could be accepted by God. And it's because of that reversal that Tim Keller says this about the gospel. Some of you have seen this quote before about the gospel. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, 
We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Aren't you glad that Jesus, when he had a decision to make about the reversal, he made it. And he walked up that hill and he settled. He showed the world's value system for the foolishness it was and the beauty of God's value system, friends. My goodness, he was killed in weakness, but raised in power for us. Therefore, you and I, when we face things, like two things, here's one. One is, if you're following along, what I value determines how I see and treat other people. What I value determines how I see see and treat other people. I'm gonna talk more about this in two weeks after Easter this next Sunday. Guess what passage we come to next if you look in your Bibles? Loving our enemies. You can skip that week if you want. But I'm telling you, this is the radical reversal of values that's found in Jesus Christ and no other leader in the world. And friends, I just want you to know that this is what's, this is what's amazing, how you and I can look at that differently. And so I want you to see that, that we're gonna see. But also think about, it. we see and treat. Now we don't look down on the poor. We don't think we're better than people that are poor. We see them just like us who need God's grace. And so as a church, We don't want to ever lose our heart for people that are poor. But like Brian Schwerberg told us, we don't also want to believe that's their greatest need. Their greatest need is for a relationship with Christ. It's just that we can't talk to them about Christ if we're not interested in paying attention to some of their most urgent and immediate needs sometimes. We need to care and see and treat other people. But here's the biggie before we close. What I value determines how I deal with trouble and loss. What I value determines how I deal with trouble and loss. Tim Keller had a big influence on me in this message. Let me read to you something of what he says about this. He says, when you and I enter into a relationship with Christ, he says, I give you a radical freedom so that you're free from the control of power, comfort, recognition, and status. And so once you and I have this freedom, we're now, we could actually live without it. We don't have to be controlled by it anymore. It does not have to keep pulling us forward. We do not have to say yes every time it tempts us. But instead, we can be controlled by Christ and his value system. Look at what he says. He says, to be in my kingdom means that these things don't control you anymore. I give you a radical freedom. Imagine two people. Both of them have great jobs, lucrative jobs. They make a lot of money. Status jobs with lots of perks. They say Let's say both of them suddenly come to realize, and this doesn't take much imagination nowadays, they're about to lose their jobs and never find a commensurate one again. Jesus says, imagine a person in the world's kingdom. How do they react? They're devastated. The reason they're devastated is they have no other significance other than the fact that they have this job and they have no other security for their family than I make this amount of money. This is the main source of their significance. It's the main source of security. They're losing their job and they're devastated. Okay, now, he says, let's take a look at somebody in Jesus' kingdom. They're losing their job. What does this mean? First of all, it means they weep. Notice Jesus does not say, well, if you're in my kingdom, you'll have this faith and when bad things happen, you'll say, I'm just praising the Lord. No, no, Jesus says, there's weeping in my kingdom. Things go wrong. There's weeping and weakness and grief. But, present tense, you can Rejoice now, not because you like what's happening to you, but because for this, I have Jesus. And when I am weak, then he 
can be strong in me in ways I never understood before. So this actually happened to me. When I was in high school, when I was 18 years old, my senior year of high school, God taught me this. And I've shared this story with some of you. You've heard me say it, but it bears a point that I want to make at the end. I worked in the produce department of this grocery store. And one day, uh, one of the head people was making uh, cartons of strawberries and then passing them to me and I was wrapping them so we could take them out on the floor. And what I noticed after the first couple minutes is he was taking a whole bunch of bad strawberries that had really started, you know, to get old. And he was covering them with a brand new box of strawberries so they looked really impressive. And uh, I thought to myself, well, you know, th- you know, people will be people. I guess that just... And as time went on, my conscience began to bother me to the place where I just sensed the Lord uh, was saying to me, you need to at least say something as humbly as you can that this is not the right way to do business. So I was thinking, well, you know, I'm sure somebody else will tell them. But meanwhile, my heart started beating out of my chest. I could hear in my mind different weights and measures the Lord despises. And I, I thought to myself, oh man, I got it. So I finally just said, hey, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here, but I, th- these strawberries, I think if we sell these this way, when people get home and they find out that we dupe them, that we deceive them like that, I think they're going to lose trust in us. So this guy, Amelia, he, he, he was already been in the grocery business 60 years by then. He was much older than me. And he goes, I need something I can take to the bank. Tell me, what's your solution? I said, I know, I know, I feel it. But um, I don't know, do we put two or three bad strawberries on the top so they at least have some idea? And you could just tell this was not impressive to me. Meanwhile, press it to him. So the manager, meanwhile, turns around and goes, yeah. I mean, I, I'd said, I said, look, I don't know exactly what to do. I just know my parents have taught me that if you honor God, he'll honor you. And I just feel like this is one of the ways we got to trust him with. I don't know how the money will. And so the manager behind me says, yeah, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. And I remember thinking, that's actually Benjamin Franklin. Uh, but, but so we're in this, you know, I just feel. So eventually he started mixing those trays up a little bit, but it was like you could cut the atmosphere. And I, I could feel the kingdoms in conflict. You know what I'm talking about? Next day, I'm at work and I get a message that I'm supposed to go to the main office to meet with the manager of the store. And he was kind of a hard-bitten, kind of uh, crusty kind of guy. In fact, most of us were just scared of him, to be honest. And I get called to his office. I'm like nervous. So I get to his office and he says, uh, you've been demoted back to being a bagger. You need to head to the front right now. And I remember it just so jolted me. And I, because I really tried to give 110%, I, start, I remember a tear started forming my eye and I was embarrassed about that. And I was thinking, oh man. And uh, he says, <clears throat> I said, did I, is there something I did wrong? Do I need to do something different? He goes, I don't want to talk about it. Just head to the front right now. So as I'm walking to the front, a whole bunch of stuff's going through my mind. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my paycheck's going to be smaller. I mean, I'm being demoted. I mean, all these things were going through my mind. And I remember thinking to myself, I felt all those things. But as I got to the front, here was the overwhelming impression. Jeff, stay down. Stay low. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that in due time he may exalt you, but absolutely bag the very best you can to the glory of God. And as I was doing it, all of a sudden this peace came over me that I realized that Jesus was going to help me. And so I, I, I started bagging with as much joy and energy as I could. He wasn't where I wanted to be compared to where I'd been, but I thought, I'm just going to trust him and, and go this way. And a couple weeks later, I got called back into that same manager's office. I was just as nervous this time too. 
And he said, I want you to report back to the produce department. I said, did something happen? He says, I don't want to talk about it. Just get to the produce department. (laughs) Now, the moral of the story isn't, if you honor Jesus, you'll get to go back to the produce department. (laughs) The moral of the story is, you can bag groceries to the glory of God when you're free. You can be wherever you need to be because of his incredible reversal. When you look to the cross, you realize there's nothing you could possibly experience any lower than he went to in order to lift us up to a relationship with God. Amen? And so, I want to just ask you to bow your head. I want you to think about the reversal of values. What is Jesus saying to you this morning by his spirit? What's he saying to you? Are there some values that you're holding on to? Are there things you're hoping in? Do the handwriting's on the wall, but you don't want to let go? The only way you'll be able to let go is if you look to the cross and you surrender your life to Jesus. He said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So I hope no one walks out here today saying, hey, if you experience any power, comfort, success, or recognition, that's bad. Enjoy it, just don't live for it. Hold it loosely. Steward it well. Bless others. And know the freedom that can come, even if trouble takes it away. So I want to remind you, there's always people down front that'd be glad to pray with you. I hope you're never afraid to come up to the front. You're welcome. We want to pray for each other, but let me pray for you now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your new administration. Teach us how to value what you value so that no matter what comes our way, we're free. Amen.